secret in the quiet place in the stillness you In the secret, in the quiet hour, I wait only for you, cause I want to know you more. I want to know you, I want to hear your voice, I want to This is the day the Lord hath made, so let us rejoice and be glad in it. I'm rejoicing in this day and rejoicing in your presence with me tonight. Thank you for joining me for this worship service. My name is Al Brady, and I welcome you. Our scripture lesson tonight comes from two places. It comes from Matthew, and it also comes from John. So would you hear, please, the reading 
of these words. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it wanders through waterless regions looking for a resting place, but it finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and live there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So would it be also with this evil generation. And then we go over to John's gospel, and we read these verses. His disciples said, Yes, now you are speaking plainly, not in any figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need to have anyone question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? The hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each one to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. I have said this to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you face persecution, but take courage, I have conquered the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Join me please for a moment of prayer. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, which art our strength and our redeemer. Amen. After a civic club meeting, a middle-aged woman, along with some others, came forward and said, You'll never know how lonely I am. And the rest of the group nodded their heads, and one of them remarked, And I guess that goes for all of us. In reality, I guess that goes for all of us. Whether it's a child in the beginning days of school, whether it's a teenager struggling to grow up, whether it's a college student in a strange environment, whether it's a husband or wife away from home, whether it's a believer struggling ethically, whether it's a single person struggling with the issue of singleness, whether it's an older person, a grieving person, an ill person, at times all of us are lonely. A great physician who treats his patients as whole persons one day said that he had discovered that 99 out of 100 individuals are lonely, and the one who says he or she isn't probably is. That goes for all of us. It also came to Jesus, this loneliness. Jesus experienced loneliness in many, many different ways. We're told, first of all, he came to his own. He came to his own and they received him not. It didn't matter that he was one of the people from that hometown, a man of their own. They still rejected him. They could do no mighty work because they didn't believe in Jesus. And then Jesus also had a, a, a spell of loneliness with his closest personal friends. He said to them, will you also go away? Could you not watch with me one hour? If you can't trust your friends, who can you trust? So Jesus had another bout of loneliness. And then perhaps the loneliest experience of all for Jesus was the cross. You remember in his desolation and his feeling of desertion, he shouted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then here we are with this text. Here's another experience of loneliness for Jesus. The disciples said, Lord, we believe in you and we're going to be faithful to you. But Jesus was not deceived. He said, you shall leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. In other words, he was giving us some assistance in how we should deal with loneliness. And then there's this parable of the man 
with the unclean spirit. You remember, first of all, he swept his house out, but later he was invaded by seven other spirits more deadly than the first one. What we're being taught here by Jesus is you cannot just sweep your life clear of loneliness without replacing it with something else. What we replace it with must be better. It must be better. So what I wanted to think about for tonight a little while is, is what we can replace our loneliness with. What we can place, replace our loneliness with. First of all, we can replace our loneliness with a disciplined mind. A disciplined mind. Now we may not always be able to change our outward circumstances, but we can decide how we are going to respond to these outward circumstances. Sometimes our loneliness is a result of circumstances beyond our control, but we can deal with how we think about these things in our minds. In other words, our minds are our own. God did not intend for us to be victims of loneliness or self-pity or emptiness. God expected us to move on. Essentially, loneliness forces us to face ourselves. And if we hear the message, the message says that there are some things we have to take responsibility for in our own lives. There are some things, simple things, that others will not accept responsibility for us because they can't do it. We have to accept responsibility for ourselves. Now listen to me. The mind is one of God's greatest gifts to us, the ability to think. And recognizing this can go a long way toward helping us to deal with our loneliness. The poet Edward Dyer sensed the significance of this when he wrote, Listen, my mind to me a kingdom is, it excels all other bliss. An active mind is an endless resource to help us deal with our loneliness, as many prisoners of war have discovered. There was a Hungarian physician who was captured by the Soviets and sent to Siberia for three years. He said, two things saved me, my faith in God and the resources of my mind. He said, I had memorized passages of Scripture. And he said, poetry was my hobby. Another wonderful illustration of how an active mind helps us to deal with our loneliness comes from the true life story of Nelson Mandela, who was a prisoner for 27 years in South Africa. During one of his first interviews, when he was interviewed after coming out of prison, he said he never felt despair. That's an astounding statement for him to make. In 27 years of prison life, he never felt despair. And then he went on to say why. He said, during all that time, I read biographies and novels. And he said, toward the end, they even allowed me to look at movies. Not regular movies, but educational movies. You see, he used his mind to consequently take the place of his loneliness. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul was telling us in Philippians. Listen to what he says here. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now prior to that, he had written a statement about joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. What he was saying was, that we will be joyful people if we keep our minds focused on these wonderful things that I read. Whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, whatever is pure, whatever is honorable, whatever is just. If we keep our minds on these things, then we ourselves will not be lonely. So we can replace our loneliness by a disciplined mind, a disciplined mind. Secondly, we can replace our loneliness 
with a noble person, purpose. If a person has a great purpose, we're talking about a significant purpose, something that enables that person to live life realistically, then that person may know moments of loneliness, but never long-term times of loneliness. A good biblical example would be Nehemiah. You remember Nehemiah was charged with rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. He had a hopeless, desperate task. The walls were in ruins. The people were scattered. Everybody was discouraged. The spies were doing everything they could, plotting against him to keep him from building. They wanted him to come down. They kept urging him to come down. But do you remember what he said? In spite of all of this, he stayed at his lonely task. He kept at it. He said, I cannot come down. I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down, he said, I'm doing a great work. How very significant that is. Listen carefully, Nehemiah stayed up working on that wall and no obstacle, not even loneliness, could get him to come down. There was a young lady in one of the churches I served years ago. She was a teenager. She recently died at the age of 39. Her name was Billy. She was married to a wonderful man and had two wonderful children. A couple of years ago, she was diagnosed with cervical cancer. Right after that diagnosis, she helped him form an international prayer ministry at one of the great churches of Atlanta. She went to one of the large hospitals in Atlanta, and she enrolled in what is called the Survivors Cancer Network. And she began to help other patients who had just been diagnosed with cancer. She started a lot of self-help groups. She knew that they needed leaders for those groups, and she trained them for it. She did all of that. Billy was one of those people who was passionate. She lit up a room that was no problem too big for her to overcome. Now, Billy could have faced her cancer with self-pity and loneliness, but she replaced all of that with a noble purpose. She gave quite a lesson to all of us. Replace it with a noble purpose. What a key. Frederick Nietzsche once said that having a why to live for enables us to handle every how. And it does. So how does a person keep hopeful in spite of loneliness? We'll take our cue from Nehemiah and others like him. They never came down. They stayed up. In other words, they continued to face their issues, their loneliness with a noble purpose. And then thirdly, we can replace our loneliness with a willing involvement. A willing involvement. One day, Carol Koff, the author, was watching some police grapple with a body of a woman who just jumped off Harvard Bridge. The people gathered around were asking, well, why did she do it? And Ms. Cobb ventured to guess. She said, well, maybe she didn't have anything to eat and she was hungry. Maybe she was lonely and didn't have any friends. At that point, one of the people in the crowd said, well, she'll never find any friends in the river, in the river. Somehow we nourish our loneliness when we focus ourselves on our own lives. The saddest people I have known are people who have focused themselves on their own lives and everything that had to do with them. There was a man that went to a great psychiatrist, Dr. Carl Menninger, and said, suppose you think you're about to have a nervous breakdown, what should you do? You would think that that psychiatrist would say, go see another psychiatrist. But what he said was, go out your front door, turn the knob, cross the street and find somebody who needs you. Find somebody who needs you. You know, Dorothy Payne wrote a book about singleness, 
And she gave many different ways of dealing with singleness, such as keeping a journal, such as forming a self-help group, taking strenuous exercise. But the thing she said that meant the most to me was this, learn to reach out to others. Now, as a minister, I've had some lonely times in my life, but I haven't stayed lonely long because I've gone and gotten myself involved in the needs and issues of my parishioners. And as I was involved in their concerns and their needs, suddenly my own loneliness dissipated. And I guarantee you that will happen to you as well. Involve yourself in the needs of others and your loneliness will dissipate. There was a highly successful businessman by the name of Bill. Bill was successful, he was contagious, he was competitive, but he had a drinking problem. He became an alcoholic, but somehow he got better. But then he went to Akron, Ohio for a meeting. He had too much time on his hands. He wanted a drink. He was possessed with the idea of having a drink. But he knew if he did, it'd be another drink and another one and another one. So an idea came to him that maybe if he could help somebody else, it would break his obsession with something to drink. So he asked around and found out about 10 other alcoholics. And he invited those alcoholics to his hotel room. Among those alcoholics was a man by the name of Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob and Bill as a result of that meeting, formed Alcoholic Anonymous. You see, it was because they were willingly involved. We can replace our loneliness with a willing involvement. And then we can replace our loneliness by getting involved in the church. Why do we need the church? Why do I need the church? That is frequently asked. There are many answers to that question. But one of the answers I would give is this. It's because it's in that environment that my aloneness turns into courage. We're talking about fellowship community. That's the name of the game for the church. For 2,000 years, it's been talking about community. You remember the parable of a good Samaritan. The parable of a good Samaritan is when this Samaritan stopped and helped this person who was wounded. But the greater help was not just mending his bruises. It was mending the pain of his loneliness. He stopped and mended the pain of his loneliness. How important that is. You know, I think, and I'm going to say this, and it sounds rather simplistic, I think there are three major problems in the world. And it comes from my reading, my experience as a pastor, my study. I think the first problem is loneliness. The second problem is meaninglessness. And the third problem is a sense to don't careism. I think Jesus Christ and the church are the answer to all those problems. What is the answer to loneliness? It is fellowship. I'm talking about koinonia, in-depth fellowship, where people really are friends. The second way Jesus Christ and the church minister is to meaninglessness. Jesus Christ himself is the answer to meaninglessness. And then the sense that don't careism. If you give your life to Christ, you'll start caring for other people. But I want to go back to this loneliness. Jesus Christ and his church are the answer to loneliness. Are you familiar with the word, the home court advantage? Well, the home court advantage basically is when the hometown team has partisan support from fans and is familiar with the environment. Consequently, they have an advantage in playing the game. And many times, inferior teams have beaten superior teams because they had the psychological lift of the fans. When my wife and I lived in Dallas, Texas, we would sometimes go to Reunion, Reunion Arena and watch the Dallas Mavericks basketball team. It would happen just about every time in the fourth period. The fans would get on their feet in a frenzy to the accompaniment of shout. They would begin to yell with all of their lungs, pulling for the Mavericks. 
Well, right then and there, I learned something of the advantage of the home court advantage. And I think that's a good way to define the church. The church is where you have the home court advantage. You have the fellowship of people who are for you and support you. So we certainly can replace our loneliness by the church fellowship. And then we can replace our loneliness by having an active friendship with Jesus Christ. Now, you know, I've mentioned all of these other ways that we can replace our loneliness, these other things we can replace loneliness with. But it basically boils down to this one thing. We basically replace our loneliness with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the way we do it. Christ told us that if we come to him, he will in no wise cast us out. He will make us whole people. There was a, a doctor by the name of James Simpson, a Scottish doctor who was asked what was the greatest discovery he had ever made. And he said, my friendship with Jesus Christ. My friendship with Jesus Christ. Many of us can say that as well. Many of us can say that as well. Now, Ellsworth Callis told the story about Norman Vincent Peale. Norman Vincent Peale, the great preacher at Marble Collegiate in New York, was on the way to make a speech, and he passed through this custom. The agent knew him, and the agent knew that Miss Peale traveled with him, and the agent said, traveling alone today? Dr. Peale said, yes, traveling alone. But in a few more steps, the agent called out, but you know, you never travel alone. And then Dr. Peale responded, nor do you. Jesus said, you shall leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me, and he's also with you. Let us pray. Lord, thank you again for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the answer to our loneliness, that you have put in us a homesickness in terms of loneliness for you, and that homesickness can never be solved by any other means, basically, except a personal relationship with you. Help us, O oh God, to know that we are restless until we rest in you. But you call us beyond ourselves, O oh God, to rest in you. So give us that peace and take away our loneliness through the one who is life. It's in his name. Amen. Thank you very much for joining us for this service, and I trust you'll share it with your friends and join us next week. Good night. Far over land and Searching for hope and a loving heart, Jesus will bring us home. Squandering all life's Pleasures, pleasure our only guest, dangerously close to ruin, failing to know we're blessed, lonely, unsure, we stumble. He wants us near. Jesus.
Jesus will bring us home. Prideful in all our chaos, boasted by Satan's lie. Shining yet always empty. Lord, do you hear our cries? Humble and meek, we ask thee. You for our sins atone. Please take. Us in and away from sin, Jesus will bring us home. Life is a moment. Longing for heaven's breast, having it all yet nothing, self over others stressed. Jesus through all has been with me. side while I roamed. He gave me comfort and cared for me. Jesus will bring us home. He and care for me.